This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. The Sunday Roast with Matt Kane. Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Matt Kane, and this is the Sunday Roast. My guests on today's show are Dr. Ranj Singh. He's probably best known for presenting various medical-themed TV shows. He's a resident doctor on ITV's This Morning, and he hosts and has co-created the BAFTA award-winning CBBC series Get Well Soon. In 2018, he competed in Strictly Come Dancing, of course, and, get this, he's about to open in his first show in the West End. All that, and he's still a practising NHS doctor. Another busy bee is Zaina Ratti, and what this lady doesn't represent isn't worth mentioning. She's an LGBTQ plus and race and ethnicity hypno-psychotherapist. Bit of a tongue twister there. She's a diversity and equalities consultant. She's the chairman trustee of Oxford Pride. She's also the co-host of the podcast Beyond Monogamy. Very intriguing title there. And somehow she still finds the time to look after her kids and join us on the show today. And this is what we're going to be discussing. First question will be, with many people questioning the purpose of Pride, what role, what role rather do we think an LGBTQ plus station like this can actually play? Also, how do we feel about some of the responses to the news stories announcing Virgin Radio Pride? And you can probably tell from that question that they've not all been positive. But hopefully even the negative ones are going to prompt some interesting thoughts and make us think about things. Next, with people getting excited about COVID restrictions lifting, fingers crossed, and dreaming about going away on holiday, we're going to be looking at the challenges for LGBTQ plus travellers. There are still 69, at the last count, countries around the world that criminalise same-sex relations. Some of them it is absolutely not safe to go to, but there are others that leave foreign tourists alone and only prosecute local people. They tell us that as if everything's fine, but obviously there's a moral dilemma here. So should we go to these countries? Next, for years now, many people have been saying that the queer scene, specifically queer or gay bars and clubs, people have been saying they're in decline and that the scene is no longer relevant to our community. But has this series of lockdowns made us view the scene differently? It has for me. I want to know if it has for our panellists and for you too. The Sunday Roast with Matt Kane, Virgin Radio Pride. Hello to my guests, Dr Ranj Singh and Zaina Ratti. Now I'm going to be catching up with each of you in between our discussions. We'll have some nice chats, but I want to start by getting straight down to business. So when we announced that we were doing Virgin Radio Pride, there was a lot of publicity, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of positive responses, but there were also some negative comments on these various pieces of publicity, as you can imagine. Here are some of the strongest reactions. Pathetic virtue signalling, said one person, should be for everyone, the complete opposite of inclusive. I'm gay and I don't want to be segregated, thank you. Do LGBT people listen to different music than the rest of the population? 
Music is music, whatever your orientation. So I can't really see the point of this station. Doesn't realise there's going to be any chat on it, obviously. <laughs> he goes on, it's divisive at best, discriminatory, spelled wrong, at worst. So, let's start. I want to ask you, Ranj, first. How do these comments make you feel? I can just imagine where these comments have come from. <laughs> um, it's a real shame, isn't it, that people don't understand the need for stations like this, for programmes like this. And often these comments, I know there are some from our own community, but these comments often come from people in positions of privilege. Um, who haven't ever, I suppose, had to think about being different or being treated differently or not being um, spoken to or heard or anything like that. Um, and, and and on the point about do LGBT plus people listen to different music? Yes, we listen to better music. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about it. <laughs> Maybe you should join us. <laughs> How about you, Zena? Do, do any of these comments, do they trigger emotional um do they trigger any emotions or any intense memories um well i guess as a psychotherapist i should be saying nobody and nothing should make you feel anything but um it's it's the same old same old to be perfectly honest it's the type of comments that we get repeatedly of you know i noticed one of the comments was about uh, cultural appropriation for instance um oh we're gonna we're gonna get on to are that we, are, one are we, are we really <laughs> um we obviously read the same comments list there's you know there's quite a few and i, I usually say to people don't read the comments yeah. because they are likely to have some type of triggering effect for you um People feel the need, and we've seen this a lot more because we've all been at home and we've all had our keyboards far too close to the end of our fingertips in some ways, of saying what they feel. However, that's always not particularly the best thing to do because whatever you say actually has an effect on other people. And what that's exactly what we need to be thinking. It should be. Uh, you know, possible to write what you like. But when you're writing things from what I call, you know, a position of privilege, absolutely, mm. but what I call the hierarchy of marginalisation, so I'm gay, I'm not listening, don't listen. There's going to be plenty of other people who will. Shall I tell you what I found interesting, actually? Um, and I've found this from speaking to older gay people. Often when you have a step forward in terms of visibility there's a bit of a backlash. Yeah. So um, if you speak to historians who know about the various stages of decriminalisation, what they often say is that after the um, start of it, or after various steps forward, there were more arrests and there was more, there were more homophobic attacks. Yeah. And actually, when I've spoken to much older gay people, they say that before visibility and decriminalisation started, they were kind of left alone because people could pretend they didn't exist. And much as obviously Virgin Radio Pride being around is an absolutely brilliant thing, um, it keys into, you know, it's like when you have a referendum for equal marriage in Ireland. Yes, the vote was overwhelmingly to bring it in, but what, what the discussion being public does is give um, a prompt to mm. those homophobes to express their views. What do you think, Ranj? I think what uh, allowing something to exist and, and, and almost, you know, in, making it real means that people can no longer ignore it. It's there. 
it's a thing now. And your concept of normality, your concept of what your world is has just changed. And some people don't like that. We are creatures of habit as humans. We don't like difference. Evolutionarily, we've been evolved to not like anything different because it's usually a threat. And that's what happens. It triggers that immediate biological reaction. Oh, my gosh, this is something I'm not used to. This is something different. I don't know what this is. Therefore, it must be a threat. That is the basic level of it. But I'd like to feel like we've evolved beyond those sort of primal animalistic instincts that we can actually think about it and say, hang on a second. Not everything different is bad. Sometimes change is good. Accepting everyone is good. Difference is good. Nature loves variety. That's the whole blooming point. You know, we evolve through differences and changing. It's really interesting you should say that because I've always thought when people talk about racism in the past, for example, they say, oh, it was the culture of the time. I always think, right, you may have a village with, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago with all white people. If they see a black person, why is the natural response fear rather than curiosity? I mean, I understand that you'd get curiosity, but why is the natural response hatred? I didn't realise that was an evolutionary yeah, response. It is. It's there. It was there initially to try and keep us safe. It was there. And the problem is some of us haven't evolved beyond those sort of primate instincts, I think. You know what I mean. I know exactly what you mean. Cave person instincts, yes. I suppose. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and fear fear exactly. When we're having those that cortisol and adrenaline rush, it's it's what keeps us safe. Mm. It's that what we call an innate fear. Yeah. Um, but it's usually fear of the unknown and it's usually lack of education. I I have lived in, in a very nice little place um, all of my life. Uh, however, I am mixed heritage. My father is Nigerian and we'll probably be talking about Nigeria later. But my, uh, you know, growing up mixed heritage in somewhere where you don't see anybody who looks like you, sounds like you, identifies like you. When I was... Uh, younger my my father returned back to Nigeria when I was four and I ended up living with my Caucasian mother who didn't know what to do with my hair not a clue what to do with my hair it may look today as if I haven't got a clue what to do with my hair but <laughs> thanks Matt and <laughs> on that note and and, Your hair's gorgeous. <laughs> and what and what happened was I assumed, and this is where we get a systemic oppression, we get this intergenerational stuff going on. I assumed, because of the messages that I was fed, really, from everybody around me and the media as well, that straight hair was professional. So I relaxed my hair. Mm. And I relaxed my hair to the point that I ended up with about two inches of hair. Now, I wore wigs for about 18 months until my hair recovered and I vowed never to straighten it again because actually this is my hair. Mm. This is a part of my identity. And when you are trying to reclaim parts of your identity, just like we're trying to do with this radio station, is this is our little corner. We want to invite you into it. Absolutely. But what we don't want to invite into it is people who come into it with beliefs that can't be changed. Something called a Morayan paradox. It's our ability to believe something that's untrue. Right. I take that. But can I actually put it to both of you that you're being a bit kind yeah. to these people? Because actually... <laughs> Well, what? I called them something. Uh, no, yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> no, absolutely. But what I mean is actually we're all talking about fear. Yeah. And as we know, the word phobia 
um, mm -hmm. technically means fear. Mm. Um, but actually, in the case of a lot of these people, it's not an evolutionary response that's natural and that's fear. It's actually about an ingrained hatred. Mm. It's about hatred rather than fear. But we learn that. That's yeah. taught. Children don't aren't born hating each other. Yeah, they're not yeah. born angry. They're not born hateful. They're not born like that. It is something that is taught to them. There's very few people, I think, that exist where this kind of hatred or discrimination is ingrained. It's inherent. I think a lot of this is taught and it's learned. So actually, it's up to us to change the tide of that, isn't it? And, and parents as well. I, you know, I had a, a conversation, um, and I think a bit of this might have gone out on the, the show on Friday, about a conversation I had with a, a head of a school who said to me, I hear what, what children say about race and ethnicity, and, and how, do you, how, how do you balance that? How do you put up with that? And I said, look, you know, I would, I would rather be tokenised and have a seat at a table because I've then at least got a voice. If I am not... I am silenced and I don't even get the chance to try and make a change. When we've got people, I'm a, a Stonewall POC role model and I go into schools and I talk to children and I talk to my own kids as well, who are probably in a pretty fortunate, if not embarrassing position at times. But, you know, what you're trying to change is a mindset. It's, it's the same as, you know, we've had recent political events, well, not so recent political events, and we're talking about racism, and we're going, racism's come back. Racism never went away. We just stopped complaining about it because nothing ever happened. Okay, I've got a question for you. So you're talking about it being down to us to try and educate these people, and you mentioned earlier, I think your expression, Zena, was something like people who have the will to change. It reminded me of, a few years ago, a certain equalities minister was unmasked as having voted against gay marriage. Mm. Mm. And um, this minister's response was... I got it wrong, I've changed my mind. If you want to eradicate homophobia, you have to allow people to change their mind, which yeah. actually you can't really argue with. But, you know, to what extent do, do our lives have to be dedicated to kind of engaging with bigots? I mean, there must be a line that's, if somebody doesn't have the will to change, Rand, you're pulling yeah. a face, you're grimacing. It's, do you know what it is? It's, it's echoing what happened with various discussions around racism recently. And it's not down to the oppressed to educate the oppressor. It shouldn't be. You're all grown adults most of the time. Go and educate yourselves. And there's a part of me that thinks, yes, sure, actually, as LGBTQ plus people, it is up to us to tell everybody that, hey, we're not as bad as you think we are. But at the same time, part of me thinks, no, it's not. Why should it be? This isn't my responsibility. I didn't choose to be the way I am. I blooming love the way I am. And I'm going to keep being me. It's up to you to go and educate yourself about it. I know, but if they're not going to... Yeah. Um, I mean, if we, if we don't do it... Um, and they're not going to. All we can, the only way to um, see off homophobia and transphobia is for that generation to die off. So that means it's not going to happen in my lifetime. I want to get rid of it. What do you think, Zena? I, and and I freely admit that about racism. I I will not see the end of. Ra mm. I'm in my forties. I will not see the end of racism in my lifetime. Yeah. And and that's a a terrible thing to admit that all the things we do. All the times we speak out and call out, they make small changes. 
but only very small changes. And we need to, it needs to change from the top down, not the bottom up. Mm. Okay, on that note, I'm going to read out a couple more comments. <laughs> um, because, actually, I'm always interested, if you if you want to wipe out homophobia, transphobia, you have to slightly see where it's coming from and understand it. So, um, some more comments from readers of a piece of, uh, one in particular piece of publicity. Um, am I allowed to listen to the radio station or will that be called cultural appropriation? If these people are to be treated as normal, please treat us as normal in the greater community. Why should they get special treatment? Just another case of pampering to the whims of whingers, says another. And then finally, we've got, imagine, this is a variation on the classic, why is there no straight pride? Imagine if there was a, if, imagine if there was a radio station explicitly dedicated to straight white people. It would be driven from existence within a day. Ranji, you're laughing. Newsflash, those have been in existence up until this point. And that's the problem. People have become numb and blind to what is going on. Most media channels have catered to a certain kind of person up until relatively recently speaking. Most radio stations have. The reason you don't have a straight pride is because you've never needed one. You don't get, you know, threatened to be killed purely because of who you are, because of your sexuality or who you love. Or, you know, even, or even made to feel ashamed. I mean, pride is the opposite of shame, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's why I think a lot of these people who make those sort of comments do it from a position where they haven't had to experience what we've had what we've had to go through, the shame that we felt, the guilt that we felt, the fact that I still hesitate to hold my partner's hand if I'm in public, if it show a, a display of affection. And I, I'm a very affectionate, tactile, loving person. I think everyone should be. But I still hold my breath sometimes in public before I do something like that. Oh, get this, Ranj. So last year, I, um, not to talk about my boyfriend, but I got engaged. <laughs> all right, all right. Some oh, of us are still single, AK. Okay? <laughs> yeah, what, what you just said made me think. Um, he, we went to the seaside for a day out. Cut a long story short. On the way, I twigged that he was going to propose. Ooh. And we're sitting on the beach. We just went to the seaside for a day out outside London in between lockdowns. We're sitting on the beach. I could see he was building up to it the first thing I did was look around yeah. to see um, what are these people going to say oh, so many straight people have stories about getting down on one knee yeah. in a restaurant and this that and yeah. the other we can't do that our first thought is what are people going to think what are people going to think you know I thought after my boyfriend asked me to marry him I want to kiss him I want to have a romantic moment yeah. and I'm thinking oh there's a there's a white guy with tattoos and looking a bit kind of threatening a bit toxic what am I you know is it going to be safe to do that and we have that built in don't we but um a lot of people with privilege don't understand that I'd love to know your thoughts on this then because as you said to us before you have you're a bisexual woman you can pass yeah. you often you know which obviously is a double-edged sword you're presumably having to come out all the time yeah but um but you don't necessarily have to think how are people going to react to my in-your-face, visible queerness? So I guess that the closest thing that we could align that to is something called code switching. 
And code switching is where you go into a place and you risk assess. You risk assess whether you are safe there or not. That's exactly what you did while you were on the beach, was you had a look around, am I safe, am I going to get into trouble here? And, and that's what you do in every single place. Yes, as a bisexual female, I am constantly being asked for uh, the stamps in my bisexuality passport, as I call it, and, you know, prove you're bisexual to the point that I've had people ask, how many women have you slept with? Is this because you, is this particularly bad when you're in a relationship with a man? Oh, absolutely. And, and really, how many, how many women I've slept with is absolutely nobody else's business. Mm. You can be bisexual and not slept with anyone at all. You can be bisexual and be asexual at mm. the same time. Mm. So what you're getting is you're getting multiple layers of discrimination. When I go into a place, if I don't see anybody that looks like me, talks like me, or is like me, I don't see maybe a, a pride flag anywhere or whatever, you immediately feel unsafe and you code switch. So you play up and play down facets of your personality. Yeah. And it's about keeping you safe. That's, Not everybody else out. That's what we've done our entire lives. Yeah. Isn't it? We don't. And, and there's that. Um, there's a quote that's going around from a book for, by a lot of people is um, talking about how uh, LGBTQ plus people growing up have to temper who they are and put in safety mechanisms and sort of, mm. you know, round off our edges. And, and then when we're adults, we have to almost strip all of that back and rediscover who we are. The hardest thing to do is unlearn. Very few of my clients, and, and, and I work exclusively within the LGBTQIA plus population, present without any amount of internalized phobia against their own identity that's a massive thing to try and unlearn so what do you think then Zenia? if we're going back to these comments um you know responses to the announcement of virgin radio pride and seeing them in the context of the pride movement in general what damage do you think comments like these can do um to people who do have internalized shame when people are reading this, and, and actually I had this the other day, there is, uh, as a therapist, we uh, are fighting to get conversion therapy banned in the UK. And uh, somebody I know who has a trans child put up the petition to have the to uh, get rid of the ban on conversion therapy. Now, what is it telling that child if their parent is supporting conversion therapy? It was done mm. through a faith and, and religion lens. But even still, when you've got those messages going in, what I call via osmosis, you know, you don't realise they're going in. They're going in, mm. they're seeping down into your subconscious, and before you can even start to work on them, you have to go around fighting all the little, fi the little psychological fires on the outside. Okay, you've mentioned our trans siblings, um, and it's interesting to me with Pride that um, it's interesting to me that people often say it used to be a protest fighting for equal rights. We don't need to do that anymore. Obviously, things are very different for our... It is interesting, isn't it? Because as gay, lesbian, bisexual people, we do largely have equal rights. Acceptance is another matter. In All, this country. In this country, absolutely. And I would always argue Legally. that... Legally. Mm. Yes, absolutely. I would always argue that um, one of the points of 
prides in um, Western countries like this is to send out a message of hope to those countries around the world where people don't have equal rights or acceptance. But on the one hand, we saw two weeks ago, I think it was, a 12-year-old boy in Devon who'd committed suicide. The... um, the court returned a verdict of suicide mm-hmm. um, because of homophobic bullying. Mm-hmm. And we are still seeing um, tussles, conflicts, confrontation constantly around the trans issue in the media and in the courts and in politics. Um, so, right, what does pride mean for you? Is it protest, celebration, commemoration? Is it still a fight, a struggle, range? How do you see it? All of those things. <laughs> <laughs> All of those things. Um, the thing is, sure, things have progressed in our environment, in this country, to a larger extent than other places. But, um, and sure, protest, uh, pride is a reminder of the protest. It's, it should be a reminder of what has happened to get us to this point. And it all should be a reminder that we still have some way to go. But at the same time, the beauty, and I and I went to my first pride only something like eight years ago. So I'm relatively newbie to that that sort of side of things. But to me, it was just such a wonderful celebration of who we are. We talked about, you know, it's not our, our job to educate those around us. Um, actually, it's not our job to educate, but it is up to us to show them who we are. And to, because to, if you don't experience any of that, if you don't experience LGBTQ plus people, they just won't be on your horizon. And then, you know, you, you almost falsely believe they don't exist. And pride is a signal um, to everyone, to other people around in this country who don't have our London experience because we're sitting in a lovely place in London. Um, it is a signal to them that, hey, we're here. It's okay. And, you know, let's celebrate some of who we are as well as carry on that fight that was started so long ago and it still has some way to go. And I have to say, for me, um, yes, absolutely, it's a protest, it's a political protest, it's part of the struggle. Um, The celebration has... Um, become a bigger part of it for me. You know, yeah. I certainly when I was growing up in the 1980s in the midst of the um, HIV AIDS crisis and I was working out who I was as a young gay man and everything and balancing that against everything I was told about um, what gay people, you know, we were dangerous, disease-carrying, sexual predators. Mm. Um, you know, I had no idea back then just how much um, things would improve. I could ne- it was be it's what's happened has been beyond my wildest expectations. And I do think um, it is important to celebrate that and to thank to actually thank and pay tribute to the allies mm. who ha- outside our community who have helped. Yeah. What do you think, Zona? I, I think it's incredibly important to thank allies because those allies are usually in a position of power that we can't get to. Mm. Something I call a concrete ceiling, not just a glass one. And when you have, you know, when you have people within our community still experiencing discrimination from within our community. Yeah. You know, when we are not standing with our trans siblings and our non-binary friends, when we when you're having 60 percent of black people being discriminated against within our own community, then that has to change. We have to still admit we've got a problem. And the very notion that we're marginalised doesn't mean that we are nice to each other all the time. The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain. Virgin Radio Pride. Now we're talking about... Pride, we're talking about responses to Virgin Radio Pride in the context of the wider Pride movement and what that means now. 
Okay, I'm going to throw something in there. Sometimes you get very um, negative, pessimistic members of our community who say pride has lost its soul. Um, what do we? We've been talking about what the spirit of pride is. Mm. Uh, would you agree with that? What would you say to that kind of comment, Ranj? I think everything changes over time, and you cannot expect pride or anything else to be exactly the same all the time. Our environment has changed, the political landscape has changed, people have grown up in a very different way now. And I, 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 there's one thing that I do agree with many older LGBT plus people, including myself, I count myself in that bracket, is that um, these younger um, fabulous LGBTQ plus people that are coming uh, uh, that are coming up and are living their best lives and I love seeing that must never forget how we got there they must never forget the history they must never forget the sacrifice they must never forget who came before us to allow us to have the pride celebrations that we have now and it should pride, pride should be a positive momentous joyous celebratory occasion it should be but like i say bashing the microwave microwave <laughs> microphone bashing the microphone just because i'm getting so emphatic i'm a gesticulator sorry um we're we'll getting some tissues you like it gesticulate away gesticulate it's been a while <laughs> since i've gesticulated in front of other people um pride should be a celebration it should be a party but at the same time we should never forget what pride means and what the heart of it is so it can be both why can't it be both oh absolutely i completely agree i want to throw in i want to confront some of the difficult issues <laughs> and one of the comments that i read it earlier called us whingers <laughs> and um some i heard a comment the other day somebody said um something about us dwelling on persecution and um, still identifying as a community that's persecuted when we've gone beyond that. Um, what would you... So that's a slightly more um, nuanced take on. They're all whingers. What do you say to that, Zaina? It, it's, <laughs> I, you know, it's quite similar to say, oh, you know, it's the victim mentality. And, and actually, it's not the victim mentality. If you look at the statistics... You know, if you look at even your own workplace and, and the notion that around about 40% of people aren't out if you're bisexual, if you, you, you know, there is no ignoring what the statistics say. Are things amazing all the time? No, they're not. But we certainly do try and celebrate what we do have while simultaneously honouring that those trans POCs who started this. Mm. Their names should not be forgotten. Their voices should never be forgotten either. And I think sometimes we have moved so far away and now Pride is a, you know, a very nice party in the park. And what we really need to do is still remember it's still a protest. We are still fighting for everybody's rights and we should be doing that together. Well, it's interesting to me as well that some of these comments actually um, don't work together. So if you think about, um, you know, being victims, if people are saying, why are you protesting? And then they're also complaining that we're being dwelling in victimhood. Well, um, it's not very victim-ish to stand and walk proudly down the street and protest. Is it? It's not very. Um, it's not the sign of a victim to set up our own radio station to talk about who we are yeah. and the things that interest us. I mean, it's almost like 
certain people just want to have a girl. Yeah. And um, they don't particularly mind if there's zero evidence for the point that they're making. I don't think what we are doing now, talking about who we are as a community in the spirit of the Pride movement, how is that a sign of dwelling on persecution and victimhood? It's not. It's fighter mentality. Yes. Isn't it? It's not being victims. We are doing everything but that, I think. I think it's acknowledging that we've come from a very difficult place and we've had, a lot of us have had traumatic experiences to get here, but actually we need to drive this forward and we want to make things better for the people coming that's the point it's that selfless part of it as well that is actually this shouldn't be like this for anybody um and i don't think that's a victim mentality i don't think that's dwelling on persecution because we are still being persecuted sorry for that news flash it's still happening um but we are doing something about it it's standing up for the um, members of our community, the sub-communities, who are still yeah. being persecuted, isn't it? Yes. And, um, all right, so we all agree there is still a point to the Pride movement in general and this radio station within it. Um, what do we see as the future? Because actually, um, talking about you know, the sub-communities, sometimes there has been conflict between them. I said at the beginning of this show, one of the reasons I was really happy to be a part of Virgin Radio Pride is that it brings together all these different sub-communities that have sometimes not always been unified. Mm. That's one of the things I think is the greatest strength of the Pride movement in general. That's one of the areas I think we should focus on in the future. What would you say, Zoni? Because as we introduced you at the beginning, you're also a trustee in the chair of Oxford Pride. Yeah, absolutely. And don't I get some stick for promoting diversity and inclusion? This year, our theme was uh, Inclusion Matters. And we made a really concerted effort to highlight, spotlight and lift up marginalised members of our community. And... In some respects, that hasn't gone down well with everyone because I have moved the organisation away from what it might have looked and and acted like previously. I can only hope that there is some lasting legacy to that. So, we, we, you know, we voted in the progress flag as our official flag, for instance, because it's a flag that makes me feel included. When you, you know, you look at the, you can go right back to the original if we're going to go all history on everybody and go, well, there was eight stripes and then it was six stripes. And, you know, we need to say thank you to Gilbert Baker for the, for the original, obviously. But the, as it evolves, and it now is the flags, for instance, have evolved. We've got over 400 of them <laughs> now. You know, these are all people's individual identities. We have these two feelings. We need to belong, but we also need to feel unique. And having that diversity of flags w- within our community enables people to feel that, to know that. I think that, you know, whatever happens with Pride in the future, I think there, it's about admitting that there is still a lot to do. I've got a, a, a piece out, or I've had a couple of pieces out in the last few weeks, talking about accessibility at Pride. Talking uh, talking about put your money where your mouth is. Make sure that people can actually get there. Make sure that they aren't ostracised. Because they are the people who will take this forward. If we look at the people who are coming into our community now and coming out and we're finding this, you know, people are going, oh, I'm 50-something and heteronormatively married and they come out. These people need to feel included too, whatever their accessibility needs are. Ranj, very quickly, we're running out of time, but you're nodding. Yeah, 
I feel like Pride has had to be a certain way for everyone to accept it. And I feel like now the time has come for us to make Pride what we want it to be and claim it back. The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain. Virgin Radio Pride. And we're straight into a chat with Dr. Angie smiling. <laughs> and yeah, so I want to chat to you about all the things you've been up to. Oh, gosh. So, well, because you've got lots of amazing stuff coming up. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, you're, I mean, the last time I saw you was on telly in All Star Musicals, doing an amazing job of Come What May from Moulin Rouge. Oh, I loved that. I was living my musical theatre life at that point. And you're about to live Again. an even bigger musical theatre life. You're going on the, West, on the West End stage in your own show. Yes, it's called Scrubs to Sparkles. It is loosely autobiographical, um, but it's a celebration of key moments and people and music in my life going from being a doctor in the operating theatre to being something in a musical theatre. Um, and uh, it's just, I've, I've roped in a bunch of my mates. So Jeanette Monrara is going to be singing, Faye from Steps, Jenny from The Chase. Uh, you've, got Gethin, some you've got some great Robert names. Rinder, <laughs> Hayley Tamadon, Gethin Jones is hosting. And it's all in aid of charity. So when I was approached after All Star Musicals to think about doing this show because they wanted to encourage people back in the theatre, of course I said yes. I had no idea what I was taking on, but of course I said yes. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it to give back to the community uh, and so um, it's all in aid of the Make a Difference Trust COVID hardship fund and that was set up to help theatre professionals both on and off the stage who have been affected by COVID um, and we know that lots of people have the theatre industry has really really struggled and part of me was kind of like as, as a person of science and medicine and stuff I understand that um, science and medicine have helped to survive this pandemic they have done incredible things but it's the arts that have really, really kept us going. And I feel like it's the arts sometimes that get forgotten. And this is my way of saying thank you back. Um, sadly, the Make a Difference Trust is having to close this year <gasps> because thanks to COVID, they cannot continue fundraising. And they've been going for something like almost 15 years, I think. They started off as a charity that was funding HIV and AIDS awareness products, but uh, projects both here and abroad it's done an immense amount of work their fundraising predominantly came from theatre-based activity theatre hasn't happened their last live fundraising event was 2019 and they've sadly had to take a final bow and this is one of their last fundraising events so once the money runs out essentially they're going to donate it to all the relevant causes but once it runs out they're going to have to sadly stop so you really have been on the front line as a as you know working in the arts and the media um as you've just said yeah. you know it's been a lifeline for lots of us during covid and it's you know the arts have really struggled but also you still a practicing nhs doctor you've been on the front line when it comes to the medical fight yeah yeah how do you juggle these kind of very different activities and very different, you know, yeah. energies and mind spaces. <laughs> I'm a compartmentalizer. <laughs> so I go to work in hospital and I get that certain kind of fix and that passion and achievement and satisfaction that I get from my job. So I work with children and young people. I work in children's a and &E in intensive care. Um, I love that job and I love the people I work with. And obviously, as you said, the NHS has been battered over the last year because of COVID. And it's been really important to be a part of that fight and, and, and helping as many people as we can. But then I also need to have 
my other bit. So my, my creative side needs to be exercised. So that's and the musical stuff and the TV stuff. So that's why I kind of dip in and out of these other areas. I'm really lucky. Let's be honest. I'm really lucky. I get to do a lot of really lovely stuff with some really, really lovely people. And I count myself very, very privileged because of that. Well, you said lucky. Presumably you've made this life for yourself. and I was a bit of work. A yeah, bit. a lot of work. <laughs> and I was going to ask you um, just quickly how, how you're coping as an individual, you know, because, you know, you've been on this front line in more ways than one. Yeah. Um, the NHS has been battered. Do you feel like you're coming out of this battered and bruised? I've been very fortunate because I work part time in the NHS and I'm able to get out and kind of rebalance and refocus and kind of re-energise in some ways. I don't feel like I've been hit quite as hard as some of my colleagues have. If I was working full time during all of this, I would be exhausted. I, you know, And there's a reason I went part time was because when I was working full time and it was day in, day out, it was a slog and it started to really grind me down. And it got to the point where I thought... I actually burned out at one point, but I thought I'm no longer helpful to anybody doing this in the way that I'm trying to do it. So I actually need to make some fundamental changes. And that really helped me. Now, when I go to work in hospital, I give 110 percent every single shift because I knew that before when I was full time, it wasn't really possible. But um, yeah, I get to thankfully do other things as well and meet some other incredible people. And I like to think it's made me a better doctor overall. And hopefully a better performer, <laughs> as we're going to judge when Scrubs Ooh. to Sparkles opens. <laughs> At the Garrick on Tuesday. <laughs> At the Garrick on Tuesday, the Garrick Theatre in London. Thank you very much, Ranj. You're listening to Sunday Roast on Virgin Radio Pride. Next, we're moving the conversation on to holidays and travel. So, now that COVID restrictions are gradually lifting, fingers crossed, many of us are dreaming of our next holiday, of jumping on a, fl- a plane and flying abroad. But there are still 69 countries, at the last count, that legislate against same-sex relations. While some of these are absolutely not safe for us to go to, for example, Jamaica, Nigeria... Tanzania, Saudi Arabia. I actually got an advert on Facebook the other day. Do you want to go to Saudi Arabia? Um, Well, these are absolutely not safe for us to go to. Others prosecute local queer people but leave tourists alone. Some examples of this are Morocco, Mauritius, the Maldives. There are even resorts and hotels in countries like these that actively target queer customers. But should we go? My brilliant panel, Dr. Ranj Singh and Zaina Ratti, are still here. And I'm now joined by Darren Byrne. He's the founder of Out of Office, a luxury LGBT travel agency. Plus, he's MD of Travel Gay, the ultimate guide for the LGBT traveller. Welcome, Darren. Now, Hello, can, Matt. Can you start by telling us what services does Out of Office provide for LGBTQ plus travellers? Sure. So we send uh, thousands of people away each year from both the UK and the US to hundreds of different countries. And and really, we look at things from a tailor-made perspective. So everything we do is bespoke. We work with hotels and resorts across the world. And we just make sure that everyone is welcome and they can be who they are. They can love who they want to love and they're welcome no matter who they love. And I think really for us, it's about making a difference and ensuring people can travel safely and travel safely in countries where sometimes the law may not be fully in their favour. Okay, so how do you navigate the challenges around 
the disparity between a country where the law may not be in their favour, but you've got a hotel or a resort that very much is. Yeah, and it's it's a very nuanced approach, to be honest with you, Matt. I think, uh, you know, we take each uh, each itinerary on a case-by-case basis, but there are plenty of examples out there where, for example, the law is not fully on the side of LGBT people, unfortunately, but like you said, hotels are very welcoming. And, you know, it is obviously a commercial decision on the part of hotels in some instances, but in other cases, it's because they genuinely do offer a very good welcome. I mean, I've travelled myself to many countries where it is illegal to be gay or to be LGBT, and I've still had a wonderful time. And for us, really, it's a it's taking a nuanced approach uh, with each resort. You know, there are a lot of hotels out there in those countries where the management team are LGBT themselves, uh, or there are staff there who are LGBT themselves. And so whilst I uh, recognise that some people may not want to travel to those destinations, I certainly want to explore the world. And therefore, I recognise that other people probably want to as well. And so we enable people to do it in the safest possible way. Well, it's also interesting, Darren, because in our previous discussion, you know, Ranj was saying you, you he has to think about holding the hand of his partner in this country, in certain contexts and situations in this country. So, um, Ranj, have you ever been on a holiday in a country where you felt that the local population are hostile to you as a gay man? I live in a country. It feels like that sometimes, let alone holiday. So so this is a really interesting thing because um, one of the places that I, I have holidayed in and I, and I do enjoy going to is Dubai. And I have lots of gay friends in Dubai who live very, very happy lives over there. And it's interesting because people will say, how can you even bring yourself to do that? And there's a few reasons here. I say a lot, some of these countries are outwardly anti-LGBT but what happens on the ground sometimes is a very different scenario the other thing I find is that a lot of the places that get sort of people are like oh you can't go there you can't go there are predominantly non-white there are parts of America that you wouldn't feel welcome going to and no one says oh I'm not going to go to the States I'm like hang on a second how can you say oh how dare you go to Dubai but I'm off on holiday to Texas like you know it's just what we've got to be very careful of is how we are equating these attitudes with where these places are from. And the other thing we must remember, and Darren just alluded to it there, is that many of these destinations, LGBT plus people don't just occur <laughs> in welcome countries. They are everywhere. If we stop going to the, these places where they exist, they feel like they have been abandoned. Their livelihoods and lives actually sometimes count on people coming and actually going there, somebody may actually be able to affect some change. There is something to be said about that. This is really interesting. Literally, while you were speaking, about five different ideas were firing <laughs> off in my head. Because, you know, it, it is interesting what you say about cultural superiority and how that yeah. um, intersects with race. And um, often it is thinking that we know better and thinking that we would include America because they're very like us, but actually, um, and looking down on other countries. Yeah, Darren, can I ask, um, Ranj mentioned Dubai. Does out of office offer holidays to Dubai? 
Yes, we do. I mean, most people tend to go there as a stopover to somewhere like the Maldives, which is in a, a similar situation. It's illegal to be gay in the Maldives, but obviously has wonderful five-star resorts. I think the other interesting thing about Dubai is don't forget, it's uh, the headquarters of uh, major Middle Eastern airlines, as is Abu Dhabi. And, uh, you know, they have LGBT cabin crew and, and staff on board those planes. And so there is, like Ranj said, a very big disparity between what the outward law of a country is and what is actually practicing in, in that place. Now, I'm not saying that anyone who goes there can walk down the street and, and hold hands, but a straight couple couldn't do that in Dubai either in terms of uh, being on the beach, etc. So, uh, you know, it's important to, to remember that the law is sometimes very different to the reality. Okay, Zaina, how do you feel about this? Would you go to somewhere like Dubai? How do you feel about the conflict between um, what the law says about people like us and um, the actual experience of going there and whether that law is going to be implemented? The, whether the law is implemented kind of dis- depends on the place. Um, I, as a parent, d- don't really get away much. And if I do get away, it's some lovely caravan resort in the UK. Um, I, however, am going to the States this year for the first time. Which because, part of the States? Do you mind me asking? New York. Ah, um, because I, I have deliberately stayed away from America because of its attitude not only to my race, but also to the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, I think it's up to individuals to do their research and, you know, and, and using travel companies who know what they're doing. Don't just go and walk into somewhere and go, right, I'd like to go wherever. Um, you know, whether you're looking at the government website, whether you're looking at ILGA.org, which will give you those places and where there is this disparity between enforcement of the law and the law. Where my where my father is currently, kind of the northern states of Nigeria, it is punishable by death. There is, you know, I have, as a result, never been to the country that is half of my genetic makeup. And how does that make you feel? I don't feel any pull to go, luckily. Um, Lots of people around me have always said, well, you must have a pull to go there. I said, look, I really don't have a pull to go there whatsoever. Um, Would I go there and be very careful? Yes. Would I go on my own and not take my family? I wouldn't take my family to somewhere like that. And what about, right, so we're talking about the reality of the experience there, but what about principles? I know it sounds like an old-fashioned word. People don't even use it much anymore. But, um, you know, should we not look at principles? And if and if laws are against us, you know, just, right, so just to do the devil's advocate thing, if all of us boycotted these countries that legislate against us, whether or not they implement this legislation, would that not put pressure on them to change their laws? What do you think about that, Darren? Well, there is uh, there is um, precedence in that case. I mean, you remember a couple of years ago, Brunei came out and said, um, you know, we are going to uh, enact a law which kills gay people. And there was absolutely huge international uproar. George Clooney got involved. Uh, letters were written. People wanted to boycott the Dorchester Hotel because there was investment from Brunei there. Boycott the Beverly Hills Hotel in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was uproar. People were protesting outside the Dorchester, you'll remember. George Clooney, as I said, wrote a letter. And actually, as a result of that, Brunei then stepped in and said, oh, oh we won't we won't kill gay people. Uh, sorry about that. They didn't change the law, but they said they wouldn't enforce the law. So boycotts and demonstrations can absolutely work. But I also think, like Ranj said, going to these places, I've been to many a place where I've met local LGBT people who are so happy 
to see a gay couple from the Western world in their resort or in their destination, that it gives them hope and it makes them realize they're not alone. And, you know, of course, it's, it's not fully altruistic. I'm going on holiday to have a, a good time. And I, I recognize that, you know, in, a, in the position we're in, we're in a very privileged position. But when it comes to principles, um, I, I totally respect people who say they don't want to go to those destinations, but I also respect the other view. And actually, for me, it's about where do you draw the line? Would you not go to Italy because full same-sex marriage isn't legal in Italy? You know, it's a progression thing. And I think if we do travel to these places, we can hopefully uh, affect change if we can do so in a safe and sensible way. Well, it is interesting because Ranj earlier made the point about visibility and you can change attitudes by just being out. I mean, that famous Harvey Milk quote, come out, come out wherever you are. Um, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, didn't she, after the Supreme Court judgment um, legalising gay marriage, she said, we're doing this because we've all met gay people. We've all seen that you're the same as us. And um, we un- we understand that, and that's why we're doing this. So you could argue that by all of us going on holiday to places like this, that can bring about change. But then on the other hand, as you just said, Darren, we go on holiday to relax and have a good time. Why should going on holiday for us as queer people be um, a, a, some kind of form of political activism? What do you think, Ranj? Do you um, feel, I mean, when you go on a holiday, what's what's the purpose of the holiday? I, I see your point. Yeah, we go on we go on holiday to relax and unwind and, and, and for our own well-being. And we're very, very lucky that we're able to go on holiday, I think, for many of us. Um, but I, I, I have this thing about if we stop going to play. So the only reason that the Brunei protest worked is because everyone started shouting about it. And that's what made Brunei change their mind. It wasn't the fact that there were LGBT plus people campaigning against it. That was not what swung it. It was when people like George Clooney got involved, when news outlets started to cover it. Not everyone gets that kind of publicity. Not all of these places will or can or do. So I feel like the Brunei situation was slightly different. And, and, and you know, these all these big hotels that got involved and started being implicated. Um, but the thing is, if we stop going to these places, we do abandon our LGBTQIA plus family there. That's what's happening. And why don't we, if we're going to go, which is, uh, uh, you know, in, like Darren said, we're doing it for ourselves at the end of the day. Why not, when you go there, educate yourself about what's going on there and contribute part of your holiday funds to a cause that tries to do something better? Right. So, Zaina, I'd love your input on this as somebody of dual heritage, because some countries have very much set us apart as us and them. And they've seen homosexuality, same-sex relations as a foreign problem that's being imported. Um, Actually, so to pick up on what Range said, by us not going and keeping us separate, that can almost feed into that. But then you could argue that by us going and being visibly gay and walking down the street hand in hand with our boyfriends, if that is safe and appropriate, um, are we just playing into the idea of of homosexuality being a foreign problem disease import mm. or do we empower the local people to be similarly visible well i guess it, you know if you're going out there and and being the best best gay you or whatever you'd like to call it um in some i can imagine horrendous shirts um it, you know yes yes you are being visible but I think what what we haven't necessarily thought about is from around about 1860 lots of these um, 
homophobic homophobic laws were kind of were imported by us in the first place you know we're not looking at colonialism and the very notion that we went over there and went this is wrong and they just happened to have kept the laws that were ours. Well, can I just say, I completely agree with you, and it's a very important point to make, that about the colonial laws, but you mentioned 1860, they have had 150 years to repeal them. I think we need to acknowledge that we... Um, you know, brought them there in the first place. very hard to repeal a law, though. It is difficult once it's in there. And I come from a country, a nation, India, where we were very liberal. We were very accepting. Mm. You know, we we recognised the third gender for a very, very long time. Long, thousands of years ago. And it's because of colonialism that these things were embedded. And all of a sudden, it wasn't okay to be who we were. And that's really hard to undo. So India is an interesting case, isn't it? Because a few years, so it had um, legalised same-sex relations and a few years ago it recriminalised them and then overturned that um, piece of legislation. Um, If we're talking about the difference between lived experience and laws that aren't enforced, um, did that jumping around with the law make any difference to you, do you think? And, And is an Indian man, as a British Indian, obviously, but um, do you know what I mean? What did you think about the two things? Oh, there are, <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not going to badmouth my mother country and the, the country where my parents were born, but there are so many things that aren't great about India, sadly. <laughs> and the biggest thing for me actually wasn't uh, the, the legislation around LGBTQ plus people, because actually I think on the ground, what was happening was quite different. It was what was happening on the ground with women. That mm. was what put me off. It was the corruption in, in, in government and authority that was happening there. But the treatment of women was a far bigger issue to me because it was a lot more fundamental. It was a lot more people affected. And I think um, other things kind of continued to happen. But the treatment of women was something that they needed to sort out for a long, 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 long time. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, just by you saying that there's so many things that aren't great about lots of countries, and there's so many things that aren't great about this country, (laughs) and should we cut off relations with any one country because of one single issue? Um, Do you know what I mean? How would we feel if... I mean, there must have been lots of Americans under their last president, and lots of us didn't want to go to America in that um, Mm. climate, but there must have been a lot of people who felt wronged by that and yeah if we're going to stop going to play on one hand if we're going to stop going to places because they're anti-lgbt we should equally do so if they're anti-women and if they're racist countries um but then you know countries are all very different where would we where would we ever go darren you're you're you've got something to say well, I, I mean, interestingly, I, I'm actually a quarter Indian myself, so I've got some Indian heritage there uh, and know about it quite well. But India's actually ahead of the UK when it comes to gender on passports. There are three genders in India that you can put on your passport. We don't even do that here yet. It's still M or F. And, uh, you know, we there was a court case recently, and, and even we don't allow a third gender on a passport. And so, you know, it is, a, it is a minefield, absolutely. And I think, you know, we need to look at ourselves as well and navel gaze a bit and think, what can we be doing better and how can we be leading by example? Do you think, Darren, that in this country or when we're having these discussions, we can sometimes quite easily slip into um, cultural arrogance and superiority? 
Absolutely. I mean, you see it when you go abroad. You can spot the Brits a mile off, right? <laughs> and that's no offence to the Brits, but you can. We're there. We're, we're present. You can spot Americans a mile off. It's, it's, it's just what's kind of ingrained in us. And actually, you know, there is something to be said, like Rand said earlier, for going to these places and learning a bit about them, learning a bit about where you go. I mean, when we send people to Sri Lanka, um, we're showcasing them LGBT charities in that in that country uh, and, you know, helping sponsor kids' education when they go there. It's about learning and immersing yourself in a culture. It's not about sitting there and, and, and saying, you know, I'm completely abstract and removed from that situation. We have to use our experience and use our privilege um, to, to help others. Ranj, when Darren was talking about cultural superiority, you were nodding yeah. very forcefully. Yeah, because... I think a lot of people fall into that trap without even realising. We gaze at other... We're, we're so lucky where we are right now. We're sitting in in in, in London, <laughs> in a very affluent part of London, doing really lovely stuff. And things for us are better here than they are in other places. And it's so easy to look on other places and think, oh, are they just savages? You know, that, that, that sort of mentality. You know, aren't they just so backward? And actually... Um, just as Zaina was saying earlier, often what happens, the reason these other places are a certain way could actually be historically because of what your country has done to them. So it's not that straightforward. It isn't a them and a us. It is all of us. How can we all be better in this? How can we help each other out? How can we learn from each other? And actually, I'm not going to judge you, but if there is something fundamentally wrong with what is going on where you are, I want to work with people from where you are who want to make that change. Um, Zaina, so some of the things you've said um, today have made me think you see yourself as having certainly access to the straight world or one foot in that world. And I just wonder whether when we're talking about things like boycotting or taking action as protest, do you think it is just our responsibility as queer people? Or do you think that our straight cis allies, that if we're going to make any kind of stand, that it shouldn't just be us doing it? Absolutely. I think when we're thinking about lived experience, what we have is that, you know, we've experienced this, so therefore we, we know that this country enacts laws that are homophobic. If you have no lived experience of that, you have absolutely no idea whether a country is homophobic, gayphobic, transphobic or not. I think when we're thinking of India, India is probably ahead of us because a third gender is spiritual. Over here, we medicalise gender. And that's exactly something that we shouldn't be doing either. Um, when it comes to kind of having, having a foot in kind of a, a straight world, as it was... Um, yeah, I've never been straight. Um, have I acted straight because I thought I had to? Yes. Until I was roughly mid-30s, actually. So, you know, everything that I say, everywhere that I do, whether I, I write something or whatever it is, is about encouraging people that, A, they aren't alone. And if we can do that in those countries that we visit... We can go over there and go, you aren't alone. There are people in other countries who feel, act and are, are maybe as concealed as you are. Then we are doing something. But it's also important that everybody else does it too. OK, so we have had one comment in from a listener, Gerald from Bolton, who says, um, we need to think of how we address this. He says... I won't travel anywhere I'm either viewed as a criminal or a second-class citizen the moment I step off the plane. 
Um, so obviously we're talking about a very short social media comment and we've had a lot of time to um, discuss this. I mean, obviously it's about personal, um, people have to judge how they personally feel comfortable. But um, what would you say to somebody who's perhaps a bit more on the fence than Gerald and can't make their mind up? The, the thing about boycotting to me is that it costs you nothing, but it costs the other person something. And it costs the LGBTQIA plus people of that nation something. It doesn't. This is why boycotting is so easy. The reason we do it is because, hey, it's no skin off my nose. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to spend any money. I don't actively have to do anything. It's passive. So, but what we need, and but but problem is the people that suffer because of it isn't us. It's the people at the other end who really, really deserve our attention and our support and our help and our kinship. And that's the thing that we've got to we've got to think about is it's not about you. It's really not about you. It's about those other people. What are you doing then to make it better? OK, you're not going to go where you may be made to feel like a criminal. Fair enough. What are you then going to do to make things better so that somebody else doesn't have to feel that way? Or God forbid, the people that are there don't have to feel that way. OK, we're going to wrap up this subject. On a lighter note, <laughs> I'm going to ask our panel, which holiday destination are you looking forward to visiting or are you dreaming of visiting next? Zaina. I keep on joking that I want to get to the Maldives before it sinks. <laughs> <laughs> she wants to go to the Maldives. I just want to go to Manchester. <laughs> I want to go to Manchester Pride. I'm hoping it's going to happen. Oh, so am I. I'm desperate it's going to happen. <laughs> Where would you like to go if you could go on a holiday around? Literally just, just to Manchester. Manchester. <laughs> that would do me. Honestly, I would be over the moon if I could just go to Manchester Bride. Um, where would I love to go? Oh, oh, that's a really tricky one. Australia would be nice, actually. My friend lives in Brisbane and, and I was supposed to go uh, last year or the year before. I can't even remember now. The time's a blur. Uh, but obviously lockdown happened and we couldn't. So Australia would be lovely. That's, I have to say that's top of my list. It's one of the places I've never been that I've always wanted to go to. So anyway, let's see what happens with COVID restrictions. Darren, you're smiling. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. I mean, Bora Bora's on my list. I tell you what, I mean, I went to the Maldives last year, Zaina, and it's amazing. But uh, Bora Bora, if you're looking for somewhere to go, I still haven't been and I am desperate to go. Can That's... you do me a deal? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Do me a discount. Anything for you, Ran. The Ram. best tip for the, the guy who runs the LGBT travel firm, <laughs> Bora Bora. Thank you very much, Darren. Now, Zaina, before we discuss our next topic, let's have a little chat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'd love to know, you work for various charities. You're a diversity consultant. You've already mentioned you're a therapist as well, psychotherapist and hypnotherapist. So I asked Ranj earlier how he juggles the kind of science side of his mind and his activities. Um with the arts side and the performing side, how do you juggle these seemingly very different activities in your life or do you see them as all being related? Well, absolutely. I think whether I am, you know, teaching about diversity and inclusion, teaching about mental health, whether I'm writing, whether I'm podcasting, it's all, it, it's kind of me. It's like Keanu Reeves in a film. And, and whatever film he's in, he's always Keanu Reeves. And so, it, and, and it's, it's me basically all the way through, whether I am uh, being chair of Oxford Pride. I used to run a mental health charity in Oxford as well called Oxford Friend. And we closed that because of... Um, 
because of grants um, over the last year or so. We'd, we'd kind of thought of, because it was a set up as a helpline, and we weren't necessarily getting lots of calls in and we were, so we changed it up and we put Facebook Messenger on it and it was incredibly difficult to get volunteers. It always is for charities um, because it's a lot of your time and a lot of it is for free. You don't even get expenses. And so we decided to, to close that charity and you, you'll be able to look at all our old um, call records uh, in the Bishopsgate archive pretty oh, soon yeah. so that's quite nice to have something have a record there well they also have the lgbt history month archive um now we're talking about your therapy and it says on your website that as a therapy as a therapist not only do you work with people who are lgbtq plus but you also work with those who are questioning um i'd love to know what challenges do these people pose and what advice do you give them if somebody comes to you as being questioning um, you know, I guess the first thing I want to say that all of my clients are the best clients in the world ever. And I am so incredibly lucky to be their psychotherapist. Um, you know, when, when people come along and they go, I, I am questioning. Most of that is about finding their authentic self. So I'll get people who will come along and they'll go, I think I'm trans. And, and people assume what trans looks like. And I'm always the first to say, this is about you finding you. You know, you don't need to look like maybe some of the media portrayals at all. You know, you don't have to be medicalized at all. It's just being happy in yourself. And that is the aim for every single one of my clients, whether you are questioning, whether you are definite, whether you are changing, evolving, dealing with trauma, because we are all dealing with trauma. All right, so here's a question. You've mentioned helping your clients be themselves. You touched earlier on the government's, on the ongoing delays to the government's plan to ban conversion therapy. Mm. And, um, you know, there's this. there's been a lot of discussion about this possible loophole making religious organisations who offer conversion therapy exempt. But um, as many people have pointed out, most of them are coming from religious organisations. What's your, you know, as somebody who helps people find their authentic self, what's your take on this? I've had clients who have undergone conversion therapy and it is one of the most horrendous things. Quite often they will disassociate, what we call disassociate from it, so they will bury it and it will manifest in other ways, whether that is self-harm, um, what we call SI or suicidal ideation and trying to get to the roots of that and recognising and getting someone to understand and accept that it was never their fault in the first place, that it was something done to them, so externally, internally, and to try and leave that behind so they can have a much better future. You know, I've been part, as, a, as the D&E officer for the National College of Hypnosis and Psychotherapy, I've been involved in what the UKCP calls the MOU, or the Memorandum of Understanding. And that's about going forward and teaching therapists to come. So I also assess and mark uh, trainee therapists' work um, in understanding that there is more things out there 
that therapists aren't even trained for. Most therapists will pathologise LGBTQIA plus identities and will also pathologise things like relationship diversity, for instance. So we need to be teaching, and this is about getting in at the bottom level and not when people have got out the top, you know, it's like learning to drive. You build up those bad habits as you go along and it's quite hard to change. I can see you shaking your head, bad bad habits of driving, huh? Um, <laughs> Hypnosis can help you. I'll see you later. And <laughs> can I just say, Ranch is shaking his head. I'm thinking as you're speaking, oh, flipping heck, there's so much work to be done. If so many yeah. therapists don't know about it and some of the concepts that you're talking about are so kind of basic and you're having to explain those mm-hmm. to your clients. I'm having to explain... Um, you know, I'm having to explain to, I, I do training for camps and I'm explaining to, to psychologists what asexual is. You know, there there are huge gaps and, and doctors don't get a lot of training on this stuff uh-huh. either. So to be able to beat this, we need to either retrospectively train people in what we call GSRD, which is gender, sex and relationship diversity. Um, and we also need to train those people as they come through. This is about having an open mindset, about being able to sit with someone and be congruent in the room. And if you can't do that, if you are practicing conversion therapy, then really, should you be having any clients at all? This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. You're listening to Sunday Roast on Virgin Radio Pride. For our next subject, I want to discuss how our feelings about the queer scene have changed over the course of three lockdowns. So if I think about my personal experience, I'm of the generation, I'm 46 years old. The gay scene was very important in my life. It changed my life. I first went out on Canal Street in Manchester, age 17. I can still remember it, the fear, the excitement. And as I got used to the scene, it helped me understand and explore and express who I was as a gay man. We touched on this earlier. Then I got older, I fell in love, I settled down. I wasn't needing to go out and pull in quite the same way. I don't think, do people even say pulling anymore? Um, And at the same time, the digital revolution happened. Those who wanted to pull could go online. Those who wanted to meet people, connect with them in different ways, could all go online. People started to say, we didn't need the gay scene anymore. Venues started to close down. What was left sometimes looked a bit tatty and tawdry. Um, But then, from my personal experience, after 18 months of having the gay scene, the queer scene, forcibly taken away from me, I realise I've missed it. I'm gagging to get back. I'm really curious to know if other people's feelings about the scene have changed. So, my brilliant panellists, Zain Arati and Dr Ranj Singh, are still with me. But before discussing this with them, I want to bring in my next guest, Roisin Murray. She's the founder and resident DJ of the What She Said Club Night in Manchester. She's also co-founder of Manchester Lacey's Football Club, which is for cis and trans females and non-binary people. Welcome to Sunday Roast, Roisin. What would you say is the role of the queer scene post-Covid? Why do you think it's still important? Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me on. Uh, I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, especially as like a, as a queer female, as a lesbian, 
Um, I, I, I think the scene, like yourself, I'm from Manchester. So I grew Woo! up in Manchester. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I came out uh, and then Canal Street really showed me who I was. And it, and it was a beautiful time. That's and interesting. Do you mind if I ask how old you are, Rasheen? I don't mind at all. I'm 39 years old. Yeah. So you're younger so, than me, but still of an age where the, the queer scene was everything. It was literally yeah, yeah. all we had. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Cambridge, so uh, it's a very small town. So there was no gay scene there. I didn't think, I, I didn't know if there were any gay people or any other lesbians there. So when I moved to Manchester, it was just like a massive eye opener and it was just beautiful. Uh, I mean, as the years have gone on, um, I felt that, especially for, for women, for queer women, for gay and lesbians, uh, females, I feel sometimes Canal Street and also uh, sort of gay areas across the UK. I feel I've always felt that they kind of cater towards the, the the male of our rainbow family mostly, and I especially noticed this when I when I decided to start what she said club uh, back in 2019. I mean, it all came about because I have a great group of male gay friends. They're brilliant. I absolutely love them. But I don't really know many lesbians or, or many queer females, to be honest. So it was it was uh, an, an all dayer on Canal Street, and I was just hanging out, and I realised I was looking up and down Canal Street, and all I could see were men and um, and straight women, and I was just like, "Wow, this has got to change." So, um, so that's so interestingly talking about the glory days of the scene, if you like, that was very mm. much for. Um, gay men what would you say were the glory days of the community for lesbians what form did that take if it wasn't built around bars and clubs which is how i understood it i mean to be fair we, we did have our fair share of uh, of bars and clubs i mean there was coyotes in manchester that was a beautiful place and it used to be for only for only for women and uh, you could bring men, men as guests it was kind of like the Eagle that's there now, you know, the, the men only club. But um, and then obviously you had Vanilla as well, which is still standing. But over time, I think lesbian bars, they have to change. For example, Vanilla now, obviously it caters for, for anyone who wants to come in and have a drink. Um, they have to learn to survive. So it used to be for women only, but it's not anymore. Um, Coyotes got shut down years ago. So sometimes venues that are catered for women, they don't survive. Because, you know, when women, I, I don't know, when a, a lesbian gets older or a queer female gets older, we kind of feel a bit pushed out when we, when we go down Canal Street because all, all the younger generation are, are like, what's grandma doing here in the corner? While like the men, you guys can go out till you're 89, do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah but sometimes. Can I, can I just say you say that? I mean, some young gays still look at the old queens and make disparaging comments. <laughs> and now that I'm 46, I've been on the receiving end of a few of them. Um, but, <laughs> all right, so this is interesting. So, in so right, we're, we want to concentrate on the positive. So we're talking about some yeah. of the things that have been wrong with the gay scene from yeah. a lesbian's perspective. Before I throw to our panel, how would you say the queer scene needs to evolve in the future to carry on serving our community as the community becomes more diverse or more embracing of diversity? 
Yeah, definitely. Like, don't get me wrong. I love uh, the the queer community, and I love Canal Street. It's somewhere. It's the only place in Manchester I can feel safe with with my partner or with my friends. You know, I think it's a beautiful place. I do think though that sometimes, uh, sometimes the the rainbow community it kind of forgets about all of its kind of uh, people within the LGBTQI plus rainbow family, you know? Like for example, My Night, which started in 2019, What She Said Club, it is catered towards women, cis women, trans women, uh, non-binary people. Cause sometimes we we go out to the, to the community and we're sometimes an afterthought when gay clubs or gay events are organized. So I feel like sometimes you've got to like over advertise to this sort of marginalized communities that you guys are welcome here, you know? I have to say, as a gay man, I mean, obviously I'm in a more privileged position because there are more bars for us, as you've said. I don't feel if I were to be excluded from a woman-only bar, I wouldn't have an issue with that. In the same way as um, there's women's magazines. And, you know, um, but... It's what you've said opens up a lot of issues. It's very interesting. Zaina, how do you feel about the scene? Have you always felt welcome and how do you feel about it now post-COVID? Um, uh, yeah, that's an interesting answer. Um, and the answer is no. I, I um, was on the steering committee for an Oxford Museum exhibit called Queering Spires and we spoke about the um, queer history and places to go in Oxford. Um, there have been places that have that have been in Oxford and they weren't ones that necessarily accepted POC bisexual women. Um, so I didn't go out, I didn't socialise at all. Can I just, sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but can I just um, ask what form did that, non-acceptance take was it dirty looks was you know what how did you yeah so it's disparaging remarks it's you know you don't belong here it's I look I'm straight presenting so people would question my sexuality um and you know when that when those types of experiences happen to you 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 don't go back you don't go oh I know I love being had a go at so I'm gonna go and have another pop and you know I think what, what we can do is we can look at um, sober spaces. So Oxford Pride run a sober drop-in. You know, the, a lot of socialising is around alcohol. And if you have had previous alcohol or substance misuse issues, you don't want to go into a pub or a bar full stop. So we need to look at maybe blending events. So looking at virtual events like we did for Oxford Pride alongside in-person events. We need to make sure that venues are accessible for all. Is there a lift? You know, if if there isn't and the, the venue is down lots of steps in the dark, there's going to be people that you are excluding. If you are not being actively inclusive, then you are being passively exclusive. Yeah, it's interesting what you were saying about sober spaces because Manchester Pride have done Superbia for years. They have a whole arm which is for for activities that don't revolve around drink or drugs. And I was reading the other day, in January next year, a new LGBTQ plus art space called Queer Circle is going to be opening in Greenwich. It's described as a gallery, a library and project spaces delivering a programme of exhibitions, collaborative artist residences and year-long learning and participation opportunities. So, Ranj, what do you think? Is it important that we have places like this to connect outside of bars, clubs and the online 
sphere. Oh, totally. Absolutely. There is so much to queer culture um, and history and the experience that I think you will not get from a bar or a pub or a club. Um, and it's really interesting, actually. You you, you know, you were talking about the, these queer entertainment spaces and, and what the scene means. Okay, I've never really... Ah, thought I was part of a scene as it were I just go to these places and have a lot of fun <laughs> did you but feel welcome in those places this is start? it I, I I never felt I suppose overtly unwelcome but um you know I've had friends who have and I was I, 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 there's a there's a very popular um venue in South London that I love going to and I love going to with my friends and have a really really good time and then it was only one of my um black friends turned around to me and said you ever notice that there's no black people in there and he felt uncomfortable I was like I didn't even think about it and actually there weren't many Asian people in there either very good point I was the only one in fact this one time there were a group of Asian boys in there Asian lads um you know they kind of just kept to themselves and I was like oh my gosh have I been totally oblivious to this the entire time because I just went along and just had fun and just kind of didn't really think about that stuff but I do now I really really think about it now I mean one thing people trot one of the cliches people trot out about Covid a lot is um, I'm sure I've said it today is it gives it's given us the opportunity to have a cultural reset to stop and think and um, you know if we're having these thoughts now that can only be a good thing Roisin will you tell us about Manchester Laces because we're talking about activities, initiatives that don't revolve around drink, drugs, pulling. Um, why is your work with Manchester Laces important and what does it do? Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, Manchester Laces Football Club was set up by um, myself and about uh, three other um, queer women. And it was because we all played in football teams around Manchester, Greater Manchester. But we realised that a lot of them... A, didn't cater for complete beginners. So um, if you'd never played football before and you wanted to start, there's absolutely nowhere in Manchester, Greater Manchester, that you can go to. They do say beginners are welcome, but they, they focus more on winning trophies, which is fair enough. But also we realised that part of our football clubs had other members who um, were trans female and a, a few non-binary uh, players as well. And sometimes in the locker room, even in, in women's football locker rooms, the banter gets a bit inappropriate and not cool. So a lot of them felt very uncomfortable that they couldn't be their true selves. So then we realised, well, this isn't great. So why don't we try and start something where everyone is welcome, whether you're a cis female, trans female, non-binary, and we'll make it a safe environment where... Banter is allowed, but you're not allowed to, you know, take the mickey out of anyone or anything. So we thought we thought up this idea. We put it out on social media and we've only been running about 12 weeks, I think. And we've had over 200 people join us. We've had one girl um, who's a trans female. She's called Claire. She was saying that she'd moved to Manchester from Wales and that she was finding it really difficult at work. She, no one was really accepting her. So, and then she found us and she said she's never been happier and it's just, you know, changed her mental health. Uh, and then uh, we've got... 
Sorry, go ahead. Um, no, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just wanted to ask whether you have had any resistance to this drive to be more inclusive, because when I was reading out the comments earlier, before you came on, um, some of the responses to Virgin Radio Pride, um, there was one from a gay man who said, I'm gay and I don't want to be segregated. Um, you know, people within the community have very different ideas about inclusivity and you know what so did you have anybody objecting to you making Manchester Laces a more inclusive group I mean we didn't necessarily it's also it, it's for queer females and obviously you know um allies as well so we've got a massive mixture of all um we haven't really had any sort of resistance from people within our own community I know we're having a lot of trouble with the FA at the minute because we want to join a league but um, in order to join the league if you've got um, trans females on on your team you have to give the FA uh, that our trans females have to give the FA their um, their hormone levels every two weeks so which we think is absolutely horrific and we refuse to have to put our players through that through that stress so the only real resistance really has been met the FA, members of the FA, coming to our space and explaining why we won't be allowed to join their league, which in the long term, we're chatting to um, teams in London and across the UK to try and maybe start up our own league without the FA in which trans females and non-binary people will be welcome without having to give tests every two weeks, which is ridiculous. Atta but girl. within our own community... Everyone's been so supportive of it. It's been brilliant. Fantastic. Right. So just just rewinding a bit, you to pick up on something you said earlier, you were talking about inviting in allies. And earlier on, you were saying, talking about lesbian bars, saying they now have to cater to everyone. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about, as we've had more acceptance from society, um, the allies have had, straight cis allies have had more of a presence in our spaces. Zaina's nodding. Um, th at the extreme, you have the hem parties invading the gay male bars, and there's obviously a lot of comment on this, but I'm assuming that those, the members of those hen parties are, are well-meaning and love us and want to... Ranji's grimacing, Zaina's nodding. It's way more fun. <laughs> That's right, because they know they're going to have a good time. They're not going to be sleezed on. They're not going to feel like objects. That you know, they know they're going to be respected and have a good time. That's what we do. All right, so <laughs> Ranj, uh, so it's so. Do we always? Um, I agree with you. Do we always have to invite in our straight allies? Although, are there any circumstances under which? Um, it's fine to have a space just for us. And I'm going to ask Zena the same question afterwards. I, do you know what? Um, I totally understand the need for places that are just for us because there are people who don't share my experience and, and have, you know, other levels of trauma and things like that. So I totally understand it. But I think if you are ever going to have a place that is inclusive, that tries to keep everybody in and you can share that space, it must be by invitation. Oh, if you're going to come to my house, it is an invitation and you need to be respectful. Take your shoes off <laughs> and be and be nice. You, you know, that, that I, I truly believe that. Likewise, if I went anywhere else, I would be respectful. I would be. And um, but I, I feel like we've earned that. 
to some extent. All of the places that I grew up when when we used to go were straight spaces or straight identifying spaces, predominantly heterosexual. And I was always I, there was a part of me that was felt a little bit uncomfortable for a while. Um, and now I feel like now I've found my family. Now I find found my places and my people. I feel like if you're going to come into this, be respectful. Zena, how do you feel about this? I think, yeah, absolutely important that people can recognise that they can have a chosen family and that chosen family can come from anywhere else, kind of feeling of belonging community. I think there does need to be, in some ways, uh, spaces. So maybe POC spaces, there's been some fantastic ones been set up. There's been some amazing charities set up around Black Mental Health, for instance. Um, Black Beetle Health are a a fantastic charity. And, And so I think... Because we are talking about that lived experience. We're talking about somebody, you know, being in a place and hearing a joke, for instance. It's just a joke, haha, not intended to offend anyone. But actually, if that intersects with your lived experience, it offends you. And not everybody sees that or understands it. So should there be separate spaces? Should there be non-sober? Should there be sober spaces and non-sober spaces? You want to go? You want to go somewhere down, you know, Canal Street and and have a a, a slight drink or two or three or four? <laughs> then absolutely go for it. Um, but there should also be spaces where people feel they don't have to do that either. Ultimately, this is about personal choice and autonomy. Yeah. And often, I just want to interject there, like the, the point you're making about there being certain places and spaces for certain people and experiences, um, that's not being actively exclusionary. People automatically say, why are you excluding? Why are you not being inclusive? The reason those spaces exist is not because people want to be separate from you. It's because what you're offering doesn't give them what they need. So, that's why. Yeah, there wouldn't be a bi pride if bisexual plus yeah, weren't, weren't discriminated against within regular prides. Yeah. So what do you think, Ranj, in terms of the different sub-communities within the LGBT family and umbrella? Um, do you think there are any circumstances under which it's all right for us to stay separate? Or should we always be inclusive within the LGBTQ plus community? We should always strive to be inclusive. Absolutely. Is that happening right now? Not to the extent that it should be. Um, are there certain members of our community that feel like they're not as important they're not treated the same absolutely queer and trans people of color for instance is just one example um it's we need to do better we need to strive to do better but until we get there we need to accept that there will be organizations situations places where people who are marginalized marginalized within our own community feel safe and feel like they are surrounded by people like them and i get that because we've all been there Okay, can I slightly redirect us back to where we started the discussion, which was looking at how our feelings have changed about the scene um, during lockdowns. I'd love to know, we can talk about what's right with the scene, what's wrong with the scene, um, and we can talk about how it compares to the online sphere and what's good about that. Actually, it usually doesn't revolve around drink, which we've talked about, but it can be hypersexualized, particularly for gay men. Um, I'd like to ask you, Roisin, how do you think the online community and the activities offered online compare to the real life scene? And um, why are the two important? 
Well, I think um, I think there's been a lot of uh, online activity that uh, that a lot of people have done for uh, queer females, um, whether it's like meetup groups online, which is great because I think what lockdown has shown is how much uh, we need people like ourselves, how much we need company, you know, especially if you live alone. Um, I think, though, now we're, we've started to be allowed to kind of go outside. I mean, what she said, Club, had our first event um, last weekend, I think, actually. So uh, all socially distanced, of course, etc. But I go? think it's really... How did re- it go? Did, did, how did it go? Did everybody have a good time? Everyone had a brilliant time. And, yeah, it was so great to see this, the old faces again. And it was just a beautiful thing to have a little sit-down dance and play some music. Yeah, it was great. But, like, uh, yeah, so the online thing is great. But I think people, the hu- humans need face-to-face kind of contact. So I think um, the scene, the gay scene, is, is really, really important. And I think as well that a lot of, especially for sort of females, like, it's a lot easier... Well, I think I don't I don't know for sort of men to meet other men, I think. But for women, I think it's um, it's really important for them to have somewhere that they can go to and meet other people just like them. I mean, that what she said, club, before the actual club begins, we do like a couple of hours meet and greets. You know, it's kind of like speed dating, but to meet friends. And what I've noticed about that, even after COVID, is they sell out completely. It's just women are kind of reaching out and to meet other women like them so yeah i think the scene is still very important for brilliant. us to meet people that are just like us brilliant i love it zaina you agree online real life how do the two compare um i think people have been able to access online even if they aren't out so for instance people that couldn't come to oxford pride didn't want to be seen there didn't want to have their picture taken could access the online content along with it being closed captions and so it's more accessible overall so i think that's a way where actually virtual has an advantage over in person you know should we be looking at not only uh, you know trans female non-binary based spaces but also spaces for parents most of us have got kids now. We, we can't be going out at silly o'clock in the morning. And, and I think expanding that scope as well as doing things for more mature LGBTQIA plus people is how we can be more inclusive. Just remember that wherever you are, you, wherever you are in your life, there is going to be somebody else who is at a different stage. Brilliant. Now, I want to throw to you, Ranj, a comment from one of our listeners, which is on topic, but slightly taken in a different direction before Uh-oh. we before we wrap <laughs> up. No, it'd be interesting to think what you what your perspective from and the perspective of an NHS worker. So, Benji on Twitter has introduced the idea of not just our queer bars inviting in straight people, straight cis people, but straight cis bars trying to be a bit queer. And Benji on Twitter says, I was leaving work today and a straight and inverted commas pub had put up a pride flag outside. I found it a bit tokenistic and knowing that pub, I wouldn't say it's a totally safe space for me. For example, I wouldn't feel okay kissing a guy in there. I asked if he thought the pub was putting its image before the customer's needs and he replied, totally agree. Now with all the NHS confusion around the flag, maybe they were just supporting key workers? I don't think so though. Um, you do sometimes get, now that we thankfully live in a much more accepting world where businesses 
venues are under pressure to show that they are inclusive and queer friendly, mm. some of them will fly the flag without actually having anything to back it up. Yeah, because there's no there's they know there's power in the pink pound, as it were, so whatever you like yes. to call it. So let's just be clear though: the NHS use of the ra- use of the rainbow symbol was nothing to do with pride, and it was not an NHS initiative. It was started by children who used to put pictures of rainbows in their windows during lockdown so that when people went for walks they saw it and then it kind of became synonymous with thanking frontline and healthcare workers and then it went to that it's a different rainbow to the pride rainbow there is an nhs rainbow badge project which is all about improving awareness and communication with lgbtq plus people that's an initiative in itself that uses the pride badge and that is a pride based thing so that's a very different that's thing that's very to different a, to a, the a, thank you nhs yeah. but but I, I agree with you you know people have realize that actually if we cater to this community of people they will come in and spend money and you know that benefits our business the thing you've got to ask is that pub that's displaying that pride flag why are they doing it that's what you've got to ask are they doing it just to get your money or are they doing it because they genuinely care about you and your experience and that's sometimes slightly tricky to work out Okay, that's brilliant. So just to summarise, we all agree the scene definitely has a future, but we've all come at it from different angles to say that it needs to evolve, not just to survive, but to serve the needs of our community. Roisin, thank you very much for joining us. No worries. I've enjoyed it very much. Can I uh, can I plug my next event in Manchester? Yeah, go on. As long yes. as we're all included and we're yeah. all invited. <laughs> Hey, yeah, everyone's invited to the party. I'll stick you on the old VIP. Do you know what I mean? It's all good. <laughs> yeah, if, you, uh, if you're if you up in Manchester on the 17th of July, hopefully uh, that's when the next event is. Just for look for What She Said Club on all the socials. Thank you very much, Roisin. Right, I now want to ask the two Ooh. lovely members of our panel, Zena and Ranj, what is your ultimate anthem? Well, I believe that we should all be holding hands, saying I love you and looking at the rainbows in the sky. So for me, it's a wonderful world. Aww. Oh, Louis Armstrong. Aww. Love it. <laughs> and I'm totally basic. So <laughs> so um, it's a toss up between Kylie, all the lovers, which, oh, my gosh, oh, that song yeah. is just, oh, hearing that at a Pride celebration is incredible. Or have you ever been in the two brewers when This Is Me comes on? My gosh, that place shakes with everyone stomping. Now that is an empowering anthem. Right, so it's interesting actually with both of your choices. (laughs) I want to know, what do you think makes a good Pride anthem? Because what makes it a good Pride anthem and not just a good pop song? Can it be performed by a straight cis artist? If so, does it have to have LGBT content in the lyrics? Or the video, I'm thinking of Kylie's All the Lovers. Mm. Um, or can it just reflect the spirit of our community and what we stand for? What What do we need? To con- what, what is a Pride Anthem, Zona? Uh, a Pride Anthem is about the lyrics for me. So it, it's about what those lyrics mean to you. And also music is fantastic for remembering. So maybe the first time you went out to a club or a pub or an event and that music came on and you, you just had to reach the dance floor. You're doing the, uh, what's it, walking to the dance floor dance, as uh, Peter Kay says. <laughs> so, if you know, it's whatever stirs your soul. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. So it so actually the artist you picked mm-hmm. wasn't no. gay. So that doesn't 
that doesn't we matter. We don't think. <laughs> so it can be an accidental pride anthem. Absolutely. I think it can come it, it can come from anywhere. Just because somebody is seen as maybe a bit of a queer icon doesn't necessarily mean everything they sing is a queer anthem. Mm. It's all to do with either memory, moment or meaning, right? So for me, the, all, all the here's a little bit of gossip for you. I got to hear All the Lovers before it was even released Ooh. because my first boyfriend um, was working with Kylie and said, oh, this is her new song, got a little sneak preview. So that reminds me of that and that time. Oh, can I ask you a question then? I'm not going to ask you your boyfriend was, <laughs> don't worry. Um, what I'm wondering is... Was the intention behind that song? Did he tell you about that song and say it's going to be a queer anthem? It's all about inclusivity and every. Or was it? No, no. Oh. So I just heard it and thought this is just fabulous. And then you see the video, and then it's times that I've heard that song when I've been out. That's what it conjures up those memories. But the thing is, with Great Showman, this is me. It isn't a queer anthem. It wasn't written. It's all about difference and diversity, yeah. which is why we can all relate to that. Um, yeah, both of those songs for me. Um, so, right, so we say that you can have an accidental pride anthem, but there are some songs that we've embraced and we love because of the spirit of the lyrics and the message, but they've been by artists who maybe haven't always been, thinking of one in particular who has a particular faith background, and they mm. haven't always been um, very queer friendly in their interviews and in their life. You know, how accidental is is allowed i mean you know do we draw the line at, um if somebody is a raging homophobe but sings a song like this is me about inclusivity and celebrating difference <laughs> uh, it's a tricky one that isn't it because my natural instinct is to say if someone's a raging homophobe and they release a song it is not for us no it's not for us at all but then there is a power in reclamation in reclaiming something isn't there saying actually we're going to take this and the biggest protest we can have against you and your behaviour is to turn your song gay that is quite brilliant but I mean I'm just thinking about it there's you know we've got a long history of artists um, doing horrible things but creating great art I mean Picasso treated his women yeah, yeah. Uh, terribly but um, made beautiful paintings. You can't say I'm not going to enjoy the painting because he was a raging misogynist. Or can you? Well, I suppose if you read a certain uh, series of wizard novels, yeah. for instance, yeah. you know, we can we can still love that story. And I know my children have enjoyed it immensely over the years. But I always make a point of uh, pointing out the author's particular views on things. Yeah, well, I mean, there's the wizard novels. I grew up reading a certain series of novels about a wardrobe and yeah. a fantasy kingdom. Yeah. And I had no idea that the whole thing was an allegory for a patriarchal Christian order. Yeah. Um, and I've read the reread those novels so many times. And even recently, um, I've still enjoyed them. But the allegorical meaning is so much yeah. clearer mm. as I get older. And then on the other hand, we had pugwash when I was growing up. <laughs> Bagpuss. Bagpuss is my queer icon. <laughs> I don't think the pugwash, pugwash books were intentionally naughty, were come they? On. Oh, I don't know. I mean, come on. But anyway, so what we're saying back to our queer anthems, um, this, they have to intentionally have a spirit of inclusivity and celebrating difference. 
Um, I mean, it certainly helps if they're by a queer artist. I have to say, I would not have had an issue if somebody else had won, but I was particularly pleased that Erasure won. I mean, it's interesting with I'm Coming Out by Diana Ross. It wasn't meant to be about coming out of the closet, mm. but um, I have no issue with that being turned into that for us. And as far as I'm aware, Diana Ross doesn't. But No, she loves it. And so does her bank manager. Mm. Great. <laughs> On that note, Diana Ross's <laughs> bank manager, I'm going to wrap up. That's about it for this week. Thanks very much to my guests, Dr. Ranj Singh, Zain Arati, Darren Byrne and Roisin Murray. I'm going to be back with a brand new panel and some brand new discussions at the same time next week. Drop me a line if you've enjoyed the show, if you want to share an experience or want to have your say. If you're looking for us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK. I'm on at Matt Kame Writer. Or you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk.